soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, king of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. And from 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we become still before you that we might hear from you through these sacred texts. You have brought each of us in our respective journeys to this moment here together. Some come burdened, some come blessed. Some come confused, some come with clarity in this season of life. But we all must come to the cross over and over and over. We all must bow our hearts before a holy God who rules the kings of the nations, laughs as rulers of this world rebel, holds in his hand all that is, including our hearts. Unify us as one and unify your church in these last days. Cleanse us and purify us that we might be a holy people, a voice in the wilderness, as was John the Baptist, heralding the good news of Jesus. And may our satisfaction be fully and wholly, completely and always in you this morning. Transform us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we have reached a culmination in this series of teachings that we've been in for all of quarter one as we've been looking at the cross, exploring sin and grace and repentance and confession, all of those good old Bible words. And so today we transition a little bit and we're moving into a deep dive into actually what happened on the cross. All of these ideas that we've been exploring up to this point, they are orbiting in the solar system of what we call in the world of theology, atonement theory. Can you all say atonement theory? Things are going to get a little bit luxury over the next few weeks, but I promise you, you will learn a lot, and it is transformative. It's preaching and teaching and the power of the Spirit that makes us new as we walk with Jesus. Atonement theory, friends, is massive. These teachings, they haven't even scratched the surface of the world of atonement theory, not even gotten close. I stumbled across my mentor, Dr. Gary Brashears, his teaching notes on atonement theory from my master's degree when I was still in seminary. And it was literally page after page after page of academic jargon, complex charts, ridiculously boring surveys of theological history. It was summaries of innumerable debates that are actually still raging right up to this day amongst believers, all catalyzed by that singular question, what exactly happened when Jesus died on the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? And for some reason, we Christians tend to fight about our answers to that question. 
Now, rather than losing ourselves in the forest for the trees, what we're going to do is distill the next three weeks huge swaths of Christian orthodoxy into three simple categories, starting this morning with atonement and sacrifice. Atonement and sacrifice. To say that sacrifice is something we late moderns don't really have a category for is an understatement, to say the least. Animal sacrifice that conjures in our minds these images of superstitious and archaic rituals. Thankfully, we say as moderns, we've left those archaic and superstitious rituals behind. With the rise of a gentler and a kinder society filled with vegans and day spas for dogs (laughs) and noble organizations like PETA and the Humane Society. And so we, aghast, rightly ask, why would the sacrificial killing of an innocent animal do anything for a human, and much more importantly for us this morning, how does the sacrificial death of an innocent man 2,000 years ago do anything for you and I tomorrow at work, or in school, or in our souls, or for our anxiety and our guilt, our depression, our loneliness, and this world? Four big questions to roadmap our morning today. Number one, what is atonement? Number two, why sacrifice? Number three, how did God do this? And number four, how does it transform us? E, you can leave that slide up there for a bit for the note takers. Question number one, what exactly is atonement? I'm pretty sure atonement isn't a word that any of you were using last week in any of your conversations. It's one of those old religious Bible words that we have in our English vernacular, but not in our common vocabulary. Webster's defines the English word atonement as reparation, reparation for an offense or for an injury. Now, to expand on that singular definition, in our English imagination, atonement makes amends for when a wrong has been done. Atonement satisfies a need for justice when injustice has been committed. Atonement reconciles. Atonement restores relationships that have been broken by a wrong done between two parties. Atonement pays the cost of something. And so in summary, in our English imagination, atonement purifies And atonement forgives for the sake of reunifying and bringing union. So a very simple way of understanding that English word atonement is to break it down into its parts. It'll be up on the slide for you. At one meant. At one meant. Atonement happens when someone takes action or when someone gives something, a sacrifice, that makes a relationship that was separated one again. At one meant atonement. Atonement is about relational repair. Now, in the English imagination, in our modern imagination, this idea of atonement and relational repair only gets us part of the way through to what the Hebrew and the Greek words actually meant. My friend and Old Testament prof at Western Seminary, Tim Mackey, who's probably one of the most important Hebrew scholars of our generation, no doubt about it at this point, in watching his ministry unfold over these years. Tim would always teach that for us to get the idea of atonement rightly into our heads, to think like ancient Hebrews thought about atonement, we have to get this idea of covering in reference to atonement, covering something. So here's a simple but really silly illustration about how we can think of atonement in its fullness. 
So we've all been to lunch with that friend, and suddenly we're sitting there and we've realized, oh my gosh, I've forgotten my wallet. Have you guys done this? Are you the one that always forgets your wallet? You know exactly what, oh my gosh, I'm, oh dude, I'm so sorry, I forgot my wallet. Yeah, you did. And so there we find ourselves, we need mercy, we have done wrong, and so we beg our friend, I'm so sorry, I forgot my wallet, to which our friend graciously responds, hey, no worries, man, I totally forgive you for forgetting your wallet. And then the waiter comes over and the waiter says, here's your check, gentlemen, gentle sirs, gentle women, whoever they may be. And your friend looks at the waiter and says, uh, my absent-minded friend here forgot his wallet. Uh, but listen, waiter, don't worry about it. I have forgiven him. <laughs> to which the server responds, what a great human you must be to have forgiven your friend. Who's going to pay? <laughs> Who's going to pay? What's needed is for our friend to say, not only in his mercy, I forgive you, but I've got you covered. I will pay the cost for you. I will sacrifice my money at cost to myself to cover your wrong, to atone for the, the separation that's happening between us. Biblical forgiveness always requires absorbing the cost of a wrong done. It does not just evaporate things out into the ethos. Because God has made his universe moral, there are concrete moral grains of the universe that cannot be gone against. Injustices and wrongs must be recompensed and be made right. Otherwise, friends, there is no such thing as justice. Now, let's stay with this illustration. Let's make it really silly. Let's make it super pretend because it will help us understand the depths and the heights and the width and the breadth of atonement, which really we will spend eternity comprehending in its fullness. Imagine now with me, we're back in our lunch scenario, except now you and your friend, you eat every meal of your life together every single day. And every single time you forget your wallet. And now imagine that every one of those meals cost a trillion dollars. It's a really good restaurant. Every one of the meals for your whole life, you forget your wallet, and every one of those meals cost a trillion dollars. The relationship would be strained, wouldn't you say? <laughs> it would be quite a cost to continually be paying for one who is wronging you in such an egregious way. The relationship would be polluted by a lack of respect, by a lack of care and responsibility, a sense of disregard for what's right and fair and just. This terrible wrong would create emotional relational severing and the relationship would obviously end. The friend constantly covering these trillion dollar meals would have to say, I'm done. You've got to pay. I'm not going to do this anymore. And in fact, for a just universe to exist, you would have to pay for that right to be made right, for that wrong to be made right, excuse me. And the damage, friends, trillion-dollar meals over the course of your life would be irrepar irreparable because you don't have a trillion dollars. It would be impossibly, your relationship would be impossibly polluted and forever broken unless, unless someone with infinite amounts of money could step in for every meal eaten and for every meal ever to be eaten for all that was owed. And this friend with infinite money outside of the two of you said, for your well-being and for your relationship, I will pay the cost. I will cover it all. I will atone for this at expense to myself. And this, friends, is the story of God and humanity and the world. 
We have collectively, as Adam and Eva, Adam and Eve, as representative humanity in the relationship, we have disregarded God's generosity, we have disdained him, we have polluted the relational air with our apathy, our carelessness, our disobedience. We have destroyed this world and human relationships with greed and self-centeredness and invasions and war. And someone has to pay the cost. Someone has to sacrifice to cover this and restore our relationships. This is what the New Testament authors were trying to get at when they called Jesus an atoning sacrifice. Jesus stepped in and he said, none of you, Adam and Eves, none of you humans can cover the cost of what you have done in your relational severing with me. The sin that has polluted and severed our relationship between human and God equals this immeasurable cost, and it must be paid. Think about it. All the isms of our society, racism, sexism, ageism, oppression, thievery, disregard for the other, harm one unto another, murder, abuse, war. How can such a cost be covered? And Jesus steps in and says, I will cover it for you at cost to myself, I'm going to be the one that atones. I will be the one that clears up and purifies the relational air between God and humanity. Now, why blood sacrifice? Which we're all a bit squeamish about. Which we're all a little bit confused about in our society filled with vegans and day spas for dogs. Why the death of these animals and why the death of an innocent being? When we enter the Hebrew imagination... We step back 6,000 years into the world of those authors and those authors that formed the mind of Jesus. We are no longer dealing with categories of money and I've got you covered and I'll pay you back for lunch. We are now talking about this grand theological scope that includes life and death. The only thing that can cover the cost of our vandalism of shalom, as Cornelius Plantinga calls it, the only thing that can cover up and purify the vandalism of creation and our relationship with God and each other is the death of a living being because our sin brings death. God had warmed Adam and Eve and his warnings proved true. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is more than a trillion dollars. This is the death of creation. When we rejected our vocation as royal priests in God's cosmic temple, we spread death instead. By not resisting the beast of sin, as we talked about, our humanness was destroyed. Our humanness died. We became like animals ourselves. When we rebelled against the king there in the garden and throughout the history of humanity, the only right thing for that righteous king to do was to let us go from him and in our separation from him, we die. So the cost of sin is death. Therefore, only a sacrificed life represented by blood throughout the Hebrew narratives can cover that cost. Now we are deep into the ancient Hebrew mind, and now we are orbiting around in the mind of Jesus and how he would have understood his life and his death as it pertains to atonement. We're kind of fishing around in that favorite book of everybody's, the book of Leviticus. How many of you are spending your time in Leviticus this year? Leviticus, let's go there. Ready? 
Leviticus was essentially a handbook for priests describing how they were to atone for the sins of Israel through sacrifices. And they did that in the temple. This is a model of the temple, ancient temple, Solomon's temple. It would have been the second temple that they had built. The temple was considered and believed to be a thin space between heaven and earth. It was the place where relationship happened between God and humans. And so these Levitical priests were trained. There were five different types of specific sacrifices that these priests would be offering in this space, covering different points of brokenness, different ways of repairing the relationship between God and the Israelites. Now, check this out. The Hebrew Bible is so incredible. Oh my gosh, I want to do an entire series just on what the Hebrew Bible is because at the center of the book of Leviticus, if you took all the chapters and all the verses, right in the center of the book of Leviticus is chapter 16. And that actually, check this out, happens to be the exact center of Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. The very center of the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the very center of the book of Leviticus, it's like it forms this pyramid that goes right up to the very center is this thing called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Don't ever say Yom Kippur. <laughs> Yom Kippur. It's a verb. It's the Day of Atoning, the Day of Atonement. So right in the center of the entire Old Testament is this most important feast of all the, Israel, all the Israelite people. And it was on this day that all the sins would be covered by a very specific sacrificial ritual. And in this ritual, there were a number of animals that would serve as the symbolic cost paid for all the death that the Hebrew people had brought about by their sin. Amen, Sophia. There were a number of animals that were involved in this process, but here's what I want you guys to see. At the core of the day, there were two goats that would be offered. One goat, the priest would lay their hand on it, cut its neck, slaughter it, and burn it. The other, the other goat, the priest would lay his hands on it and symbolically lay all the sins of Israel's people on that goat, and then they would cast it out into the wilderness. It would be carried by the Azazel, a fit man, a strong man, some dude that you know ate a lot of kale. I don't know what it exactly means. We don't know what it means. We just know that this, this priest was fit to carry this goat with the sins of Israel out into the wilderness. So the sacrificed goat's blood, the one that had its throat slit, would then be taken into the most holy place, literally called the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence dwelt above the ark, and atop the ark was what was called the mercy seat or the place of covering. The blood there would be sprinkled on the ark and all throughout the area. The cost paid for the people and the relationship in that moment would be maintained and purified and strengthened by God himself. And then the sins of the people would be borne out by the fit man, carried by the one who was able to carry the sins, symbolically speaking, out into the wilderness, making everything right in relationship between God and the Israelites again. Every year, Yom Kippur, every year this was a visual, tactile, embodied, bloodied reminder to God's people that sin severed relationship with him, brought death. In this case, it brought the death of these innocent animals. And so, friends, think with me as late modern Westerners here in urban San Diego. When we think like ancient Hebrews, in this framework of atonement and sacrifice, 
When we think of animal sacrifice, it becomes a reminder of how far God will go in his love to restore and maintain relationship. This blood sacrifice is not repulsive, it's restorative. And it's not disgusting, it's a definitive reminder of how God's grace and mercy and longing work in this world to be bringing people to right relationship with himself. Now we're all begging the question, Dan, they were innocent, those animals had done no wrong. Which brings us now to our third question for the morning. How did God do this? How exactly did God do this for all of the world? Every priest that ever lived and served in the temple throughout all of Jewish history, those priests were all imperfect representations and forerunners of the ultimate royal priest who would come as the true representative between heaven and earth, God and man, and make the sacrifice. Every innocent dove, bull, goat, ram, and lamb that bled and died to cover the sins of the Israelites, all of those sacrificial animals, they were prophetic pointers to the truly innocent Lamb of God who would not only come as the priest offering the sacrifices of atonement, but would offer himself as the sacrifice that atones. Now, please track with me. This is so important for the life of our church, for the rest of our existence. To understand God's love, we must have a right understanding of how he actually did this in himself. God would embody himself as the priest and become the sacrifice. And so, in the sacrifice of Jesus, what we see is our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, actively working together in concert to pay the cost of human sin. All three persons of the Trinity, at cost to all three persons themselves, all three persons made atonement for us sacrificially out of love and longing to be with us. Now, track here. This is probably going to be somewhat of a paradigm shift for a lot of us that were raised in the church. Due to some very unfortunate overemphasis over the last 500 years of certain facets of sacrifice and substitution where the church has been taught about atonement theory, and I would say also due to some serious neglect of other facets of atonement theory, other pieces of the pie, this kaleidoscopic work of Jesus on the cross, due to overemphasis and neglect in other areas, the modern Western Protestant, that's you and I, we have a seriously deficient picture of who God is or the mood in which God sacrificed Jesus for us. Here's how you may have understood Jesus' death. And I'm going to exaggerate this I'm going to exaggerate it for effect, okay? Here's the story of the gospel and sacrifice. I am imperfect and repulsive to God. At my core, I am sinful. Therefore, God who is holy cannot be in the presence of sin, has to destroy me. In fact, he's repulsed by me. He may even hate me. He's angry with me. His wrath just wants to wipe me out. Thankfully, Jesus stepped in and took the raging punch right in the face in my place so then I can go to the good place when I die. Now, I'm still gross and repulsive, and I could be dropped and destroyed by God at any moment, but thankfully, Jesus is standing up there running guard. No, Father, don't hit him. Oh, oh. Does this resonate with any of you? Angry, raging, swinging, unpredictable. The old word is capricious. Capricious God, ready to just slam you, and then there's good Jesus saying, I'll take it. I'll take it. 
Listen to me, friends. There are some Bible words in there, ideas like substitution, ideas like wrath, which we're going to continue to try to develop. Ideas like justice, ideas like substitution. They're in there, but they're grossly misused in that paragraph that I just said to you guys. There is so much terribly wrong with what I just paraphrased because what I just paraphrased to you guys is what we see in the archaic pagan rituals of animal sacrifice that we're all repulsed by. We have paganized. We have taken from the pages of the Bible and imported into it this sort of Greek sacrificial imagination to where now God our Father is this capricious, unpredictable, demanding, angry God. And for us to win his favor, we've just got to hold up Jesus and hope for the best so that Jesus just takes the pummeling that God wants to just lay out on us. That is an extreme way of putting this. But what I want you to understand and try to grasp this morning when we think about the Trinity and atonement is that the picture, that paraphrase, is the exact opposite picture that the Bible paints of our God in this sacrificial system of atonement. And this is why, friends, our theology starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. If you can get that down as Bible Christians right now, that your theology of who you are and how we exist with God and each other in this world starts in Genesis 1 and not Genesis 3, it will change you forever. We are his imago Dei, his image bearers first. We are first and foremost Adam and Eva, dirt clods in whom he has breathed life, but he calls us children Genesis 1 through 2, we are his royal priests in his cosmic temple. We are his human representatives among the beasts. We are humble servants in his garden kingdom. And this is all long before we get to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is this tragedy that robs us of our vocation as priests and robs us of our place in the garden kingdom. But our father's heart towards dirt clods in whom he has breathed life, in whom he calls his children, his disposition towards us is always and forever gentle, kind, compassionate, loving, merciful, longing for intimacy, not despising us, not repulsed by us. And our father is willing to do whatever it takes to be with us. And what it took was the death of an innocent being in our place. It took the death of Jesus, his son, to restore relationship by covering the cost and maintaining justice and holiness. Friends, the father in love sacrificed his innocent son and the agony of that moment we will probably never comprehend. The innocent son didn't just kind of get in the way of God's wrathful, angry punch. Jesus said to the son or Jesus said to the father and the spirit somewhere in the eternal councils of the Trinity, I will go and be in their place, Father, out of love. He willingly laid down his life out of pure love, not blocking the punch, but as one with the Father, absorbing into himself the cost of our sin and the death that we have all brought. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in concert with the Father and the Son, he was involved in strengthening Jesus for the ordeal on the cross and then raising him from the dead. We're going to get there. Easter's coming. And it's that same spirit who right now in a sermon on Sunday morning awakens you to this as a gift, not something to be repulsed by. Who opens your eyes and you realize, 
my father loves me so much. Jesus loves me so much. The son loves me so much that he would cover my trillion dollars because forgiveness costs that much. My life is worth his life. Friends, atonement and sacrifice, it's not repulsive. It's restorative. It's not divine child abuse. It's maybe one of the most ridiculous, uneducated things I've ever heard coming out of liberal academia. It's our triune creator, Father, Son, and Spirit, in concert, covering the cost of his foolish children, calling them to himself so he can live with them forever. How did God atone for our sins through sacrifice? Not as an act of angry rage against an innocent man, but as a collective whole within the Trinity in a concert of sacrificial love at infinite cost to himself to cover you and I. Number four, fourth question as we close and come to communion, how does this transform us? How does this change your psychology? How does this help you with your anxiety? What does this do for you on Monday morning? As counterintuitive as this may sound, meditation on the sacrifice of the innocent Jesus is a primary source of Christian transformation and Christian formation. The great George Mueller, who I'm reading again, great master of prayer, incredible. He said, through reading of the word of God, and I would say in the gospels in particular, in the cross narratives in particular, especially through meditation on the word of God, the believer becomes more and more acquainted with the nature and character of God and thus sees more and more. Besides his holiness and justice, what a kind, loving, gracious, merciful, mighty, wise, and faithful being he is. Nowhere is this meditation more potent than in the crucifixion scenes of Jesus. And when we meditate in the crucifixion scenes of Jesus, which are gratuitous in some measure, they're over the top, it affects a number of changes. When we let the cross and what happened at the cross 2,000 years ago get into our bones and our bodies and our souls, it changes us. Five concrete ways that these meditations will transform you today, help you with your anxiety, bring you forth into a world in a different way this week on Monday. Number one, when we meditate on the cross of Jesus and his sacrifice, it deters us from sin because we become more aware of what our sin actually costs. Friends, the reality for the Israelite people every single year, and actually through most of the year through these animal sacrifices, was visceral. They had to watch these animals being cut and burned and die. Really, truly, only the most calloused of heart is not moved by the death of an innocent animal. Have you ever seen a lamb slaughtered? You know, I, I went out with my friend one time, Jace. His family owned a mobile butchering company. One time, one time, I went out with Jace. We went from farm to farm to farm, butchering pig, pigs, chickens, goats, sheep, lambs. It is un unraveling to watch an innocent animal come forth. Jace would use a particular type of gun that would shoot it right in the head to watch the animal convulse, to watch it begin to bleed out, and then to watch it sit there and be butchered. Watching innocent life is unraveling. When we choose to meditate on the brutality of Jesus's death, it makes sin repulsive to us. For the sake of time, though we may still get into this at some point, the Romans had perfected scourging and crucifixion to an art form. 
They were the most torturous society, maybe next to the Assyrians in all the history of humanity. And so to sit in our imaginations and in our meditations with the bleeding, dying Lamb of God, we suddenly begin to see that what we once justified as not a big deal and consent and not hurting anybody did. It did. And he willingly took that into himself to pay the cost. And I would propose to you that it is only the most calloused of heart that can walk away from meditation in the cross and communion with the king and continue to freely sin at will. In fact, I would say that soul is on its way to damnation. Number two, the sacrifice of Jesus satisfies our longing for justice. This is important. At the cross, true, true justice has been served at a cosmic level. What we're getting to the roots of here is why we as humans want justice, because we've been made to exist in a moral universe, why we demand that cost be paid for wrongdoing, and we see in Jesus' sacrifice that the cost has been paid by grace. Think about this. I've been meditating on this a lot lately. When we're reading in our news feeds that Putin is bombing maternity wards, what happens in your body? I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm a father and a husband. I'm a pastor of a church of people that I dearly love. What happens in my body when I start thinking if we were in the Ukraine? Rage. It's like this. If I could get Putin in my grasp, there would be pain. <laughs> Great pain. Maybe that's a little bit arrogant. I don't know. <laughs> but we all feel some sense of need for justice. Those emotions that we feel, Putin bombing maternity wards, the emotions that you feel in that, friends, those are just fallen, deformed echoes of God's perfect wrath against sin. Our emotions for wrong and right and justice and need for recompense are in microcosm what God feels out of his entirety and perfect being throughout the history of humanity. And so someone has to cover that cost. Otherwise, God is not right, just, true, beautiful, and good. If God said to Putin, you're forgiven, but there was no penalty, no cost paid, we would be rightly outraged. This is how we need to frame up God's wrath. God's wrath is against sin. It is against the outraging things that we do to creation and each other, and it must be paid. And even the most egregious and the most unholy and the most awful and violent of sinners, if Putin tomorrow were to say, I have come under the king's reign, I repent, I am sorry, I withdraw, I turn to Jesus in repentance, then justice has been paid. His cost, it's been covered. This is how scandalous the grace of the cross of Jesus is. It covers the most horrific sin done to and done against. It covers all that we cannot cover ourselves. But if Putin and all peoples of this planet don't turn, then all that is left is for the king to come and allow the results of our sin to destroy us and bring our death. It was the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth. He said, Wrath is the way that we humans feel God's love when we resist him. Can I just say that again? Wrath, Bart would say, is the way that humans experience, wrath is the way humans experience God's love when we are resisting him and his will. He would write, the very heart of the atonement is the overcoming of sin. Sin in its character as the rebellion of man against God and in its character as the ground of man's hopeless destiny and death. It was to fulfill this judgment on sin 
that the Son of God, as man, took our place as sinners. He fulfills it, the judgment, as man in our place, by treading the way of sinners. Now listen, by treading the way of sinners to its bitter end, in death, in destruction, in the limitless anguish of separation from God, we can say indeed that he fulfills this judgment by suffering the punishment which we have all brought on ourselves. Number three. You are transformed this week by meditating in the cross of Jesus because you are truly pure, loved one. Some of you have noted that I'll refer to some of the authors of the New Testament, St. Peter, St. Paul. Those authors refer to you, the church, as hagias, the saints, holy ones, pure, set apart. We spend most of our lives avoiding this sense of shame. Most of what you're doing this week is trying to create fig leaves or coverings for what you experience as shame in your body. That's what we're all doing. I need more Instagram likes. I need more money. I need more of this. I need more of that. I've got to get, I've got to, I got to, I got, because this shame is driving us. I'm convinced that the default human emotion post-Genesis 3, because of sin, is shame. It's, it's, it undergirds everything. Shame is that sense of pollution in our soul. It weighs us down. It diseases health. It isolates us. It makes us feel ugly, invaluable, not worthy, alone, left out, and dirty. Sin that we have committed and sin that has been committed against us, it pollutes us. And this sacrifice of Jesus, symbolized by the animals and the Holy of Holies over the place of covering, the mercy seat, now in this cosmic temple there at the cross, sprinkled over his church, we are sprinkled with his blood and it purifies us. This is what the author of Hebrews was trying to pastor his little community in Italy towards when he wrote to them, Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and from having our bodies washed with pure water. The great practices of Christianity that we will carry on through the rest of our lives are helping us, as we'll talk about next week in atonement and participation, are helping us to live out what we actually are. We are pure in reality, and now Christianity is learning how to live out of that security and purity for the rest of our lives. Number four, our relationship with God is forever secure. The sacrifice of Jesus means that you are safe. Unlike the Israelite people, who every year, year by year, had to bring new animals and watch new lambs being slain over and over and over, new goats being sent off to the wilderness, performing those rites over and over and over. We, as God's people, the church, for 2,000 years now, we look back to what was done, finished, and completed. This is communion. Those stupid little plastic cups do not do justice to what we are remembering. It was a meal, a feast of deliverance and delight and remembrance and holiness and joy because every gathering of God's people, we would come together around a table and we would break bread and we would hear the king say, this is my body. It cost my body to heal you, to purify you. And this is my blood, my promise to you that I love you, that you're safe, that I will never leave you, that I will always be transforming you, that I have purified you and that one day we will be fully together in union, all of us together, and we will hear the glasses ching, well done, faithful servants, and we will drop our crowns at his feet and worship forever. When we remember Jesus' sacrifice, you and I remember that we are secure in holy love. We are pure, we are his, we are restored, we are covered, atoned for now and forever. When we close with this, number five, 
it motivates. When we meditate on the cross of Jesus, it will motivate you tomorrow morning to live a sacrificial life on mission for your neighbors. St. Paul, my favorite of all the New Testament authors, lays out this sweeping, vast theology of sacrifice and atonement through 11 chapters in one of the most magisterial books ever written, the book of Romans. And then chapter 12, Paul turns a corner. 11 chapters of God did this through the sacrifice and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, he says, now you go do it as God's people. Jesus has done, now you go do it. In our language, it's the be with Jesus, become like Jesus. Now go do what Jesus did. Sacrifice your lives for this world and for your neighbor. Romans 12.1, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's temple imagery. That's Levitical imagery. We become the priests and we become the offerings ourselves handed out to our professors, to our peers, to our bosses, coworkers, laborers, friends, foes, and neighbors this week. The Spirit would compel you this week to ask, what would it be like to offer yourself this week as a living sacrifice as your true and proper worship of God? What is atonement? It's relational repair. at one Why sacrifice? Because our vandalism of shalom, our decreating of God's creation, the only cost, the only payment that can cover that cost is a life, a perfect, innocent life, God embodied in flesh. How did God do it? Not as this angry act of, of unpredictable rage, but out of a weeping father's heart, offering his son as our representative in our place. And the son saying, I will do this out of love for my brothers and my sisters, my little brothers, my little sisters, my family. I will step in and I will cover the cost because I want you to be mine. You are mine. Three weeks from now, we'll talk about how he invaded the enemy's land and said, I pluck you out of his grip. I take you back to be mine. How are we transformed? We're transformed in that way this morning. Here on a Sunday morning, we gather around communion. We gather around each other. We gather around song. When we sing these things, there's something in the physical that's transformed. Our neural physiology literally transforms. Shua was hinting at some of that stuff with 80% water and all that super cool stuff metaphysically, outside in the realm of the spirit, there is something that transforms in us. Every song we sing, every partaking of communion, every moment we remember, it's like we take a little more ground. The kingdom of God takes a little more ground in our hearts. Right here, you know, tiny little gathering of saints joined with the global church here on a Sunday morning together. Today, we take a little more ground. I wanna invite you to do something. Close your eyes. And in a bit, some of our community leaders are going to be coming up and they'll be handing out communion. But I'd like us to just stay seated for a moment as we begin to sing. Take a deep breath into your belly. We're more than just brains in jars. Our bodies have a whole lot going on in them. It's something that Westerners have lost. 
but the Bible was written by Eastern sages and there's a lot of wisdom to be brought back into our world for the flourishing of our being. Another deep breath into your belly. And now, if you could, would you just allow yourself a moment to feel, and this is going to feel disorienting at first, but where might you have a memory of shame or embarrassment, guilt or humiliation? Another deep breath. Where do you feel that in your body? It's, it's like a, if it just feels dirty. You know, we consciously spend so much time fleeing that feeling, suppressing it, numbing it, avoiding it, justifying it, acting like it's not there, but it, it is the core of our drive. Another deep breath. Where is that, that memory that humiliates or embarrasses or shames or feels disregarded or betrayed or broken or guilty? Just allow yourself to feel that for a moment. And this morning as we're going to sing and we come to communion, I want you to think of carrying that shame and I want you to see Jesus. We don't do this for emotional effect. When Jesus was scourged, the passage that we opened with, his back would have been torn to shreds. Little brother, little sister, my back was torn to shreds to heal you. Prior to his crucifixion, to absorb how shame has driven us. His face would have been beaten beyond recognition, the prophet Isaiah tells us. Crown of thorns pressed into his head. This was the sacrifice of an innocent being in our place to cover the cost. And now, if you can, I don't want you to envision an angry father who's coming to you with finger pointed, you've messed up, but I'm gonna punch Jesus. I'm gonna hurt Jesus in your place. I want you to envision a father weeping, crying his eyes out with such a desperate passion, a longing to see his wounded children close to him. His arms are spread wide through the cross of Jesus. They are one in the same, Father and Son, Holy Spirit, atoning for us and grasping for us and gaining us through his finished work, purifying us. If you can, bring this sense of embodied shame and humiliation to a place of deep safety. You're safe right now. You know, what, 75 or 80 of us in here, we're all in the same boat together, friends. There's no posturing in this room. I'm just as humiliated and embarrassed and insecure as you are. I need my Father to hold me now. Nothing is holding me back from you. Redeemer and my friend, Nothing can keep me from you. You have atoned for our sin. Whatever dirtiness or wrong you have experienced in your life, even now, put a stake in the ground, friend. Pull your shoulders back, hold your head high, and declare by pure faith, I am pure in the blood of Jesus. I have been sprinkled clean. I am holy. I am a saint of God. Alongside Saint Paul, Saint Peter, I am Saint Dan. <laughs> you see, friends, when we meditate in this way, 
Things that we once found repulsive or disorienting become our deepest delight and our highest joy, and they carry us into Monday morning as heralds, singers of songs of salvation, preachers of truth, teachers of the way of Jesus. And so sit and be still.